This is a Wild Gate Production Podcast. Welcome to the D&D World! Meet you by the art room door In a circle on the hallway floor I made up a new map last night It's got a dragon and a wizard fight Be coldest, coldest open, or however you want to do it. <laughs> uh, have you guys ever seen the movie Prince of Persia? No. No? You should watch it. Uh, it's a Disney movie, so it's probably safe enough for the kids. And then uh, it's just like a fun D&D movie. I remember when it came out. Everyone really panned it, but then I watched it, and uh, it was fun. Like, you know, it's got evil sorcerers, and you know, Jake Gyllenhaal's in it, and he's like a he's like a prince, but he's like a swashbuckling prince. It's good. It's like it's very uh very Sinbad-y. You yeah, know, like I, there's uh, especially the part where Jake Gyllenhaal gets up on stage and does like a full fifteen minute stand up set. That was really weird. I'm sure this is a reference to something I do not understand. <laughs> it's the reference of the comedian Sinbad, Carl. Oh, got it. <laughs> Millennials, am I right? <laughs> what a timely reference you just made. <laughs> uh, but this is not the Sinbad show. I don't know where this is going. <laughs> this is the, the Saber Die Podcast, the podcast about classic Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Crispy. I seemed really unsure of that. Like, am I? <laughs> I had to check in with myself. <laughs> I, I'm uh, one of your hosts, Carl. And I am one of your hosts, Courtney. <laughs> we have a special guest on our show today. Uh, author of Playing at the World, Mr. John Peterson. I'm pretty sure I'm John Peterson. It's, 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 it's good. It's good. You know, I've... I've seen what you look like on video, and we're not doing a video call. You could just be someone doing a John Peterson impression. I mean, you know, these dulcet tones are difficult to emulate. <laughs> Quick, tell us a fact about 70s LARPing that only you would know. <laughs> that a lot of it started around UCLA? Oh. It was Wilderness Tourney, and they, they would drive up to Malibu. There's a state park there where they would cast fireballs at each other and swing swords and set up these elaborate scenarios and some people play orcs and run around and they help them i think like every six months or so that it's one of the earliest kind of boffer larp combined with DD phenomena of course deriving ultimately from the sca and many previous historical events but yes it's john peterson it really is john peterson <laughs> you ever like be around someone that just confirms all of your imposter syndrome <laughs> He's like, no, I really am stupid. <laughs> John, we're so excited to have you on the show. Uh, this has been years in the making uh, <laughs> to have you I, back. I think it has. I think, I think you're right. I mean, we've been talking about this for so long, and just we have circumstances have conspired <laughs> to keep us apart. Yeah. Oh, boy. All right. So, uh, full disclosure, we did record a little bit. We lost that. So now we're we're treading old territory. But just because people didn't get to hear it previously, uh, what have you guys been doing in gaming lately? I want to start with John. John, what have you been doing in gaming lately? 
Honestly, not a lot. I mean, there's this thing going on, and you know, we're recording this for posterity. Decades from now, people may still be listening to this. There's this this COVID thing that's going around that has created a certain amount of social distancing, and I have been taking advantage of the solitude that that has afforded us to catch up on a couple of video games I've been meaning to play. Um, there's this series of Japanese games, the Persona series, and they just came out with a new version of Persona Five, and that was kind of a high priority for me. I think these are really actually important games um, in the evolution of JRPGs. And so, uh, and also they're like a, a ton of fun. So I, I was doing that. But before that, I was playing Death Stranding, which is really kind of the perfect COVID game because you basically play in this post-apocalyptic world an essential worker who um, is part of like Amazon, basically like delivering packages around this <laughs> apocalyptic wasteland. And, you know, you got to keep a lot of social distance. You know, when you come to deliver your packages, you talk to people's holograms. They don't come out to greet you. So mainly been doing stuff like that. And then, and then writing, you know, I really write more about games than I play games overall these days. So uh, Carl, what about you? Uh, so uh, amid all of the uh, social distancing, uh, I've decided to take up LARPing. Uh, <laughs> me and my kids have decided, uh, since we have so much time to kill uh, during our days, that we would uh, get some Nerf boffer weapons out and uh, hit each other with them, uh, which has been just immensely fun. Um, I'll set up these little scenarios. I uh, uh, introduce them to... Um, a wizard character that they get to uh, interact with. And they are, uh, they just turned uh, seven and 10. Um, so it's, it's very immersive to them, even though it's just me in like a wizard hat with a, <laughs> with a buffer weapon. Um, like one accessory will change and he's a different, <laughs> totally different character. Yeah. He's a man of different hats. All of accessories <laughs> are hats. Exactly. Like I will walk around the corner, throw on a wizard hat, come back and I'll be like, oh, it's the wizard. <laughs> I'll get very I excited. That. <laughs> I'm going to steal that for my own games. <laughs> Courtney, what have you been doing? Because I know you're still working as am I. Yeah. Um, I besides playing while Connor DMs, um it's <laughs> gonna be a trip. <laughs> I haven't done a whole lot, but we are getting ready to start a game with some friends, so I will probably be gaming fairly regularly, like every week, um, going forward, hopefully starting Saturday. So nice. Um, but yeah, Connor's DMing right now is the maps, D&D maps. Um, Carl can probably reference the exact product. And then he, he likes to get all the miniatures out um, and like set them around the table or put them in the beds or whatever, like put all the characters out, all the NPCs out. So. Yeah. Until the town is fully populated, you don't get to even know the name of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Really? He's, 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 he's got to set up his world. Uh, first, uh, yeah, we uh, have we've been using um, these. Uh, it's a fairly uh, new product, Tactical Maps Reincarnated. It's a, it's just a bunch of D and D maps from various products during like three and four E, and it's it's mm -hmm. a nice little value of tactical maps to use for your games. Yeah, I have the Dungeon Tiles Reincarnated. Uh, I have not been doing any tabletop gaming except for um, that one game you ran for the like the Discord. It's the only D&D I've done. I've been playing The Witcher 3 fairly regularly after uh, going back and actually completing The Witcher 2 
So I started the game and I was like, well, I have this old save file and I'm at like the final act of the second game and I could just complete that. Uh, but like, you know, I, I know what choices I'm going to make. So I just started playing and it kept I had like anxiety about it. It was hmm. awful. I felt guilty for not continuing my first save through all three games. So I went back and beat The Witcher 2. <laughs> it only took like three hours. I was right at the end. Um, and the, yeah, that's every waking moment when I'm not playing Animal Crossing or like watching trashy reality TV with my fiance <laughs> has been that. My social distancing has actually been going pretty well. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's it for me. Um, do we want to get into today's topic, which is going to be, I'm going to let you lead on this one, Carl, because <laughs> this has been your idea. And, uh, I, I was thinking of some stuff to say earlier, but, uh, I think like, because this is from your brain, sure. um, I, I think, uh, I think I'll let you take the lead and I'm really glad to have John on the show today because like even before in the, uh, the previous recording that we lost a little bit of, um, just so amazed by his ability to just like pull out factoids. <laughs> it's like uh, it, the LARPing things that you were talking about earlier. Is that in your book? I will admit I've wanted to read it, but I have not actually bought a copy. Well, you know, playing at the world has um, there's a number of defects in it, um, apart from the extravagant length. Uh, one of them is it really runs out of steam in like 1977. Um, it really doesn't try to represent anything other than kind of the birth of the role-playing game hobby and the kind of earliest efforts to turn it into a thing. So no, there, there's really not much about LARPing. Uh, okay. re really, I mean, I talk about James Dallas Egbert a bit actually in the epilogue. And with that, I talk about, because there were these rumors, right? And for people who don't know the story, this is, of course, the kid famously who supposedly disappeared under the steam tunnels in 1979, around the time of Gen Con then, uh, who turned out hadn't. He'd just, like, run away, and he was, you know, somewhere else, and it was fine. It had nothing to do with D&D, &D, but this is what went a long way towards making D&D &D a mainstream phenomenon, this panic that surrounded it. It was really the, the origin of the satanic panic, that moment. But there were all these press reports that kids um, in East Lansing, Michigan, where he was a college student, had been playing some live-action version of D&D, right? That they were down in the steam tunnels and that there were these elaborate um, environments they'd set up there where they'd put treasures or disgusting orc brain things made of old spaghetti and things like <laughs> that. And so maybe just in that part, I talk about it a bit, but you know, so somebody needs to do this and, you know... I've got like a million things on my writing plate at the moment. Um, I would love to do that story of kind of how we got from those very early LARP experiments in the 70s up to, say, you know, Vampire. I think Vampire really you know, crystallized for a lot of people what LARP is when it came out in the early 90s. And But there's just an amazing amount of material in England and America around all that. And so, somebody needs to do it. Man, we got to have you on the show more because there's like... <laughs> There's more things as I talk to you. I was like, I want to pick his brain about this. I want to pick his brain about that. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's get into the topic for today, at least. Um, and Carl, today that is. <laughs> so when I uh, pitched this show idea, uh, I called it the myth of old school exceptionalism because I'm incredibly pretentious. Uh, and it's th this idea that I see... Uh, kind of permeate discussions about 
what is and is not old school D and D. I think it's almost always put up as this sort of like isolated experience. There, there is a universal game that we all played until uh, 1999 when it all changed, and then there were multiple kinds of games of D and D out there. But before that, um, it was this sort of uh, monolithic identity of what D&D was and I'm resistant uh, to that idea uh, my limited experience I started playing D&D in 1992 uh, but I, I don't feel like our game was kind of any any more the the status quo than any other table and I think what sort of happens is people look at their own table or their own experience and think of that on a broader scale and I wanted to talk a little bit about one these concepts of like what uh, is the old school D and D experience and how varied that actually was. And, and this sounded great to me because there was no way that the myth of old school exceptionalism could be controversial in any way. You wouldn't be getting <laughs> any angry letters having a show about that. And so I said, I'm I'm in. I know that this this could only go well. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we did discuss a little bit about how this could be a controversial topic. So I guess uh, up front, we want to say the views and opinions of everyone here are their own and do not represent Save or Die or Wild Games Productions. Uh, so we're all on our own. <laughs> but send us your emails. At, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, whatever it is. Questions <laughs> at saveordie.info. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I guess I was going to say to start that, you know, I, I, I think... Yeah, the the myth in some respects, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned 1999. And I think a lot of people do see a break around the time that Forge stuff started coming out, let's be honest, right? There was this kind of interest in RPG theory then and kind of looking at RPGs. You know, so it's something that should be criticized the way that other forms of art are criticized and products should be made al- along those lines. And, you know, one of the foundational texts of that movement, right, was Ron Edwards's um, A Hard Look at Dungeons and Dragons, which is, you know, it's largely a kind of what I remember back in the day uh, that Ron Edwards wrote. Um, but it's very much about the incredible diversity of the early experience and about how, you know, he anecdotally recalls, you know, there would be gaming groups that would have, you know, a couple issues of the dragon, like a copy of the monster manual, like the third book of one of the white box sets and a bunch of house rules. <laughs> and it, 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 anywhere you went, it was just completely different. That's and literally I, how I got started. <laughs> but yeah, that was but, in well, 2002. <laughs> That's pretty good. And obviously that, that was true. I mean, obviously, um, different people had access to different things. And when we talk about old school, we can talk about it in a couple different ways. You know, like I said, playing at the world runs out of steam around 1977. And that initial period, um, before even before people called it a role-playing game, even before people had the idea that there was this kind of emerging movement that had a bunch of different components to it and different people playing. I mean, there's you can look through the microscope at like that era in its incredible diversity, which was you know, grounded in, let's face it, uh, you know, the fact that D&D was, as one guy put it in 1975, it was more of like an outline of a game than a game, <laughs> right? <laughs> it was, um, you know, a, a set of rules, but it didn't really give you much instruction on what you were supposed to do with them on like the moment to moment play of the game. Uh, you could tell you how to, you know, resolve a combat, kind of, I mean, this this is something where, that was a source of endless confusion and spell memorization, subject of endless confusion. Um, so 
so I mean, even in that that very early period, there was necessarily a lot of diversity because the guidelines of D and D just left people a lot of work to do. And then you know you get into how diverse it became once other voices started to really have an influence on the community. And you know you can look at a product like Superhero Forty Four, right? This this guy who was running a D and D campaign who at one point opened a portal that went to, you know, a superhero world, right? And his players went through it and started interacting with like Dr. Octopus and things like that. And they started making rules for what it would be to be a superhero in that environment. And just seamlessly, his game transitioned from a medieval fantasy D&D game into the, ostensibly the first published superhero system. Hmm. So yeah, I mean, there was an incredible diversity of activities around this from the start. And as more creative people engage with the game and started putting things out about it, um, it led to this just incredible cultural movement. It's so interesting to say that, you know, old school D&D as it was played in the 70s and 80s is a monolith when the only thing that I think is is monolithic about old school D&D is that every table was different. So to, I, I do think there is something to be said, like Carl has said, that Everyone is extrapolating their own anecdotal experience into being like, this is how it was for everyone when it, it, it wasn't. Um, so much so that, you know, like if you look at um, if you look at Gary's attitudes for Dungeons and Dragons and like help columns and things like that, you know, I think largely the takeaway up until AD&D I might be mistaken. You know, I'm not like I'm not a cool like archivist like John, so I might get some stuff wrong. That's why he's here. Um, up until like AD and D, his answer was, "Well, it's your game. Like, figure it out. Like, what do you think would be cool?" And to the point where you know, then he published the quote unquote definitive edition uh, uh, in AD and D, and it became, "No, these are the rules. This is how it is." And yeah, that, that was um, a transitional moment for the community. There's no doubt about it. I, mean, I can remember a piece, a guy named Scott Rosenberg, who was uh, editor of a zine called The Cosmic Balance, wrote, when he heard that there was going to be a basic D&D and an advanced D&D, where he was like, it's over. Like, <laughs> you know, the entire community we built is over because now all the things that we got to choose for ourselves are going to be in cold, hard type. And, you know, it's going to lead to this wave of conformism. I mean, it's it's like any underground phenomenon, right, to some respect, where the early adopters, the people who are into grunge before Nirvana got big, oh, now everybody loves, oh, my God, the, everything's over. It's all sold out in commercial. There's a certain amount of that to it. But, you know, I, I think maybe Scott at the time didn't have enough faith in the fact that even if you print it in cold, hard type, like people are still when you're just sitting around the table with your friends and playing like you know that this the collaborative creative process that takes place is something that can't be removed by over specification it's it's always going to be there and it's always going to be transformative and it's always going to be you engaging with what is going to work for the people you're playing with i i think i do understand where scott was coming from though because even today i i I started playing D&D when it was almost 35 years old. Uh, and I've been playing for more than half my life. And still to this day, I was—I just think to myself, I really wish D&D was uncool again so that other people didn't have it and it didn't have the, the same authority that I would have. 
Like I, I, I very get that reaction. reactionary. <laughs> like I get where he's coming from. I mean, D and D is cool again for the first time, but like, I, I don't know. I think it is a very reactionary um, stance to take. But I, you know, ultimately, like as as you said, other people playing it a different way doesn't take away from the way you're playing it. Which is, I think, ultimately like the the biggest strength of D anD. d No, I agree. I mean, it's only the people sitting around the table with you that have to like the way you're doing it, <laughs> and like you you tell the story that you find compelling, and um, yeah, I, and I mean, obviously, uh, you know, there there is when we look at that period when AD anD. d came out. You know, this is a time when because of that whole James Dallas Egbert stuff, there was this mass influx of new players, and a lot of them were young. Um, this was a point when the demographics of D&D shifted from kind of high school, college down to like middle school, <laughs> like point where, you know, two thirds of the product they were selling was, you know, bought by or for people between 10 and 14 years old. And those people, you know, maybe didn't engage with the game the same way that a college student would engage with the game. And so there was this kind of tiered um, at least perception in the community that, you know, they called the munchkins, right? That this is a term that really came from this era, the munchkin hordes who would descend on these games and at conventions or at local clubs and older and more mature players couldn't reconcile themselves to their play style. And so, you know, th- those people really did cut a path for that was very different from playing by the book. And there was much more, I guess, playing by the book that was kind of instilled in these poor kids when, you know, the dragon went out to 100,000 subscribers. And that was what, like, everybody read and everybody trusted. Mm-hmm. I do firmly believe that older versions of D&D are played a different way than I would play, say, Pathfinder or 5th Edition. Um, and I know Carl, like, doesn't agree with that, which is why we're doing this show. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Um... Uh, one of the things about the OSR is that we're we're either trying to recreate uh, an experience uh, of the of our own past or of a past we didn't know anything about or you know was not involved in. I mean, the version of D and D that I prefer to play came out before I was born, um, so I'm 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 sort of reaching back through time and finding this this version that is to me a, a, there's a sense of idealism around it. I guess I feel like there's two camps. There's there's that they, that we commonly talk about, and that is story games versus simulationist games. Uh, these are the two camps we put kind of most role playing games into, and I think that wording is wrong because I think all of these games tell a story, and my issue with those wordings and my issue with this concept of like story game is somehow a new concept is because when you read the OD&D books from 1974, uh, Gary Gygax in his foreword tells you nothing except about stories. Like, if you like these books, play this game. So it was always sort of framed as this sort of story generator. And I think you can see that also in the games that came out right after D&D. You know, if it wasn't fantasy then it was horror or it was superheroes or it was science fiction and if it were not a story generating game we would see games that came out um 
you know, like city builder or manage a hospital or, you know, manage a police precinct. Those would all be exciting scenarios to take effect in, but they're not necessarily uh, dramatic narratives that we're drawn to. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. And we could spend a whole hour just on this question of the story simulation. And of course, you know, there are a bunch of permutations, this model, the one that was kind of the first popular one among role, role players was Glenn Blacko's model, right, which separated, so he identified these forms that he believed um, would be exemplified by different D&D games. There was a, a wargaming form, which included all that kind of simulation stuff. There was a role-playing forum, which was really focused on kind of the players and their, you know, them experiencing their characters. There was a, a storytelling forum, which was focused on, you know, there being some kind of overarching narrative, usually one governed by the the referee, by the the dungeon master, uh, not not exclusively. He admitted of a couple different varieties of how that could play out. And then, of course, the power gaming forum, this idea that you're really just there for wish fulfillment to make the biggest badass and to kill the most orcs or, or whatever. And, you know, what Glenn's great insight was, and at the time, people really recognized this as a great insight when he wrote a famous article about it in 1980, you could find in different worlds, you know, is that when you were looking at those munchkins, right, when um, people are trying to figure out why can't we play with these kids who are doing AD&D, um, you know, Glenn acknowledged when most people started, they really were kind of power gaming and like... Um, he even suggests that like the OD&D rules, because of the experience system itself, because of the way progression is presented as the ostensible obje objective of the game, um, that was going to steer you in a power gaming kind of direction. And they, they saw a, a maturity process by which people got more interested in the role-playing dimension and the storytelling dimension. Um, most people really didn't like the simulation uh, dimension of it. You, you kind of hear people play that down a bit, but you hear voices advocating for it as well, suggesting that the wargaming component of D&D, you know, it, it was still a, a very substantial part of the experience. And, you know, Pathfinder and 4E and things that are very focused on those kind of tactical miniatures battles, I think substantiate what the appetite is among some kind of players for that. And so... Yeah, I mean, uh, that, that diversity of opinion about what the right way was to approach the game, Glenn was probably the first person who really articulated that as a, a philosophical model. But that idea that there were these kind of different incentives or different creative agendas, if you will, that people brought to these games, it went back to the wargaming community. I can show you things from like 1971 where there are wargamers saying, man, you know, I'm a fun mainstream wargamer. And then there's these people who just play to be competitive, or those are bad guys. And there's people who are just too focused on simulation, and they're bad guys too. And, you know, there's this, like, mainstream of fun, though, that I belong to. And so even before D&D came out, people already saw those divisions in the community and created those kinds of, like, typologies to pigeonhole things that weren't quite the way they wanted to play. The, the biggest difference i think for me for an old school game versus um versus like a newer version i guess contemporary dungeons and dragons i hate saying new school or modern i i i want to coin a new term uh which is contemporary dungeons and dragons and that's anything that's not osr dnd so everyone go out on Reddit and like the ODD seventy four boards, start spreading that out there for me and just credit me so I get so I get the cool credit. Uh but for me the the biggest disconnect between those two playstyles is actually rolling dice for everything. Uh in my head I, I equate, you know, just what do you want to do? 
blah, blah, blah. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, that succeeds. To me, that's very much a, a facet of old school D&D. Whereas in chem- contemporary D&D, it's, it's a role for everything. Um, and I'm not alone in this. I've played with a lot of different people who are around my same age, who never had that experience of playing old school D&D, who have only played contemporary Dungeons & Dragons. And we all sort of have that same understanding of this is how you play Dungeons & Dragons. But uh, just recently, I, I was rereading through 3.5 because I got bit by a, nostal- uh, a nostalgia bug. And the rules encourage you to take 10 and take 20 which are the rules, the codified rules for things automatically succeeding. And I don't know why. I think it was because you had a new demographic of, 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 of like a new generation of munchkins who didn't have the previous exposure to the way D&D may have been played um, going into this, who, you know, just picked up the rules and were maybe of a slightly younger age increment, that, that high school, middle school age. Uh, and, you know, we all decided rolling dice is fun, and that's what we want to do. Yeah, I mean, certainly if you go back to um, D&D 1974, um, there's not a lot you can actually roll for. And it's it's really unclear even if you're supposed to be able to roll for anything. I mean, it's if when you get back to the very original rules, you know, should the referee be rolling? Should you be rolling? Should you even have that sense of engagement? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that agency um, was something that the fan community kind of agonized over, like what the right approach to that was. Um, but if you really look at the rules, I mean, there's no like perception checks, there's no passive wisdom, there's no, there's no search, there's no, like all the things that we think you should just naturally have a die roll for. You didn't have dice rolls for, you had di- a die roll for, can I open this door on one or a two? <laughs> you had a roll for listening at doors. But, you know, until the thief rules came out, and, you know, they obviously existed in draft form in 74, but then Greyhawk in 75 brought them to the mainstream audience. I mean, that was the first place where there was really a concept of, like, skills, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a bit of skill in Empire of the Petal Throne. You know, there's professions, and you could make things with your professions and things like that. But it was really this broadening of the scope of resolution is one of the main things that actually changed a lot about these games in the first five years or so. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to BRP... Um, to KSM's basic role-playing, the engine underneath RuneQuest, and then subsequently Call of Cthulhu and everything else, you know, BRP has a much broader sense of what are resolvable actions. And these were rooted largely in the, the Perrin conventions, right? And Steve Perrin's uh, house rules for D&D in the Bay Area that kind of ended up getting backdoored into RuneQuest as he went forward. And the Perrin conventions is one of the first places I can point to that introduced like an arbitrary kind of dex check like, okay, if you want to do some acrobatic feat, well, here's a here's a thing you can roll that will resolve that. And that that was a huge shift. And yes, when when I play 5e, 5e is incredibly crunchy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, there's just there's rolls for like everything. And um, you know, I, I I'm not sure I would necessarily lay the blame at Jonathan Tweet's feet for that. I mean, I think three brought in a lot of really cool RP-ish concepts from Ars Magica and, and you know other stuff that Jonathan was working on at the time. Um, but you know, sec- second ed had that kind of you can roll for most sorts of things. Um, so I mean, yeah, there there, w- there was definitely an evolution in this, and I think that evolution was pushed by a lot of things other than D and D during the the old school era and B- BRP with its just concept of statements of intention and kind of how they get resolved. This idea that you don't even have to roll unless there's a conflict 
either a conflict with another player or a conflict with the environment, that's when the dice come into play. I think that was really the road that led us down to where 3D is. Yeah, but so I was originally going to disagree with something you were asserting uh, until you qualified it with the thief rules. Because when you look at the things that there are rules and skills and things like that covered in 3 they are almost one-to-one corollaries to the things that you would roll for or the certain procedures you would find in the exploration phase of classic D&D. Um, and it's so funny that you brought up Jonathan Tweet and and RuneQuest, because I, I remember reading Once Upon a Time a critique of 3.5 of someone stating that, you know, they... Jonathan Tweet really wanted to make the new version of Quest, and he did that, but disguised it as Dungeons and Dragons with the D20 system. Um, so, like, the things that you're doing and rolling for are, they're not really that different from what you would see a role called for in classic Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and I, I don't know where the disconnect is coming from but the the well i mean i think it's it's around classic there right i mean if you're talking about dungeons and dragons before 1976 i would disagree i don't i don't think there are rules for you know most things that you would try to roll for i mean again there's things like perception right are like not generic character abilities Um, that would be well uh so things like perception the if you break it out into spot search all those things that would be your your I guess we could take it a little further than the original rule set, but that's going to go, that's going to correlate to, you know, your, um, your D six rule to search a room for traps or your, um, your listen at doors roll. Right. So those things got, they changed the names and filed down the serial numbers, but it's still the same things. Um, but even kind of going back to your earlier, um, s- statements, uh, specifically with RuneQuest, um, the game's rules as written, 3, 3.0 and 3.5 specifically, state that you should really only be rolling under duress. Like, if if someone's not trying to mess with you while you're trying to climb up a wall, or if it's not exceedingly difficult, or, you know, listen at a door, pick a lock, like you should be taking 10 or taking 20 to just automatically succeed. And... Yeah. Don't know where a, there's a generation of gamers, in my opinion, who sort of just all missed that paragraph. When I, I did the uh, the D and D Next playtest in whatever that was, 2012. 12. Yeah, I, I remember the the first thing they did when I sat down with my GM was they said, "Okay, they picked somebody at my table and said, you know, get up from your chair, like walk around the table and sit back down." And the person does that and. The, the DM said, okay, anything you want to do that is, you could do as easily as that, you can just do it. There are no rules. Mm-hmm. That was um, one of my favorite things about the D&D Next Test, was them bringing back auto-success and just making it a, a much more prominent function of the rule set. And it was great during the playtest. I still find that for some reason, people have come in new to 5th edition, still are requiring you to roll for everything. You know, I think uh, there's there's two ways that people talk about old school gaming, and I think that's uh, in rules and in play style. And I think one of the things that did change in 2000, even if the rules have a lot of a lot of similarities, 
there's less similarities between 3.0 and 2E than there is between 2E and OD&D. You know, the, the, the OD&D is, is closer to 2E than 2E is closer to 3E. You know, there's 25 years where D&D was, was pretty much the same rule set. And um, what I am interested in is this concept of, of does how much does that rule set dictate the play style or is the play style easily separated from the rule set? And are there people who are playing 3E, 4E, and 5E um, in what we consider an old school style? Because of course there are. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, how 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 common was it to play? Uh, you know, in the 70s and 80s, in what we now consider this new school style. And so I think one of the things that 3E does that kind of refocuses us into this kind of um, new school style where we're we're kind of relying on the character's abilities instead of the player's abilities. I think that's a big separation between these play styles is that it presents the rules in a way that is one very streamlined, which means that now the thief isn't the only one that on their character sheet has these, these hide opportunities and these sneaking opportunities. It's every character. So that, communicates to the person at the table well i have this list of abilities i should use them yeah and you know i always think of symbolist of ed symbolist the designer uh, co-designer of chivalry and sorcery when we get to this discussion because symbolist was one of the first people who looked at D and said you know people all the time tell me that they've played these amazing campaigns with D with amazing stories and everything and he said, yeah, but if you look at the rules themselves, They're the so rules are really just about dungeon exploration. There's like nothing in there about role-playing. There's nothing in there about anything other than kind of this life of this murder hobo life. And he made the argument quite forcefully in, you know, 78 and 79 that, you know, that the system of a game, you know, limits everything that it's possible to do with the game. And that the fact that D&D failed to specify to a sufficient degree, what you do with your downtime, right, was what started to inspire him to write chivalry and sorcery, to look at a broader simulation of what a medieval world would look like. And, you know, in in retrospect, of course, when we look at chivalry and sorcery, which is an incredibly complicated game (laughs) with, like, all these, like, horrible simulation-y, wargame-y things in it, um, you know, there's this great irony that Symbolist would advocate so passionately for, like, the the emptiness of OD&D compared to it. But, you know, th- this became a common talking point in the late 70s and early 1980s about D&D and about, you know, there, there were people who really did just want to kind of look at it like it was a war game um, because anything you did that made it more than a war game is something you did. It wasn't built in. And th- this goes back to that that idea that D&D is just an outline of a game and it's kind of up to the referee and the people around the table to figure out what they want to do with it, to build enough system and material into it to make it into what they want it to be. And, you know, when I think of what the oldest school D&D is, when if you ask me what is old school, you know, old school for me is that period. It's that period of that incredible freedom and the creativity that that freedom unleashed in people, which led to this incredible diversity of play styles, of people that were focused on stories, people that were focused on power gaming. Um, and yeah, l- later system, the more you specify, I guess, this is what this ultimately comes down to, the more things you tell people how to resolve, the more the system fills in 
what it is to do a particular action, the more that does guide them, right, into particular kind of conduits of play. Hmm. Right. And I don't think it's impossible to break away from that, but I do think it presents the challenge of breaking away from it, where um, when there's less structure, it presents this challenge of, of filling it in. <laughs> it's sort of the reverse. Right. That's, that's so interesting. I don't I, I don't think people have ever stopped doing that. Um, you know, well, of course, you, even Gary Gygax didn't stop doing that. I mean, you know, if you read the the D and D, uh, you know, the Dungeon Master's Guide, like he, there's all these escape valves. He's like, oh, this is the absolute lockdown system, and yet he says all the time, eh, feel free to fudge die rolls and yeah. feel free to arbitrarily change events if you really want to. If that's what serves the direction you want to take the campaign, just do it. And of course, everybody just did whatever they wanted. Even with, uh, I'll take Pathfinder for an example. Um, I don't know. I, I find that the more my take is is that the more rules there, the more rules there are to dislike. The more these rules get codified, the more I want, the more I'm encouraged to throw them out and come up with my own simplified homebrew solution. Well, yeah, when you when you hear Ed Simbolist talk about this too, or Gygax, I mean, it's always important to remember that, you know, Simbolist was speaking from a position of advocating for a new game system competing with D&D, and so he, he felt like there was a need, you know, just as a, uh, to, to differentiate, right, what, what he was doing and why you should buy CNS instead of AD&D. And similarly, Gary Gygax, right, he was confronted with this immense diversity of the playstyles of the 1970s, and you know, it's kind of hard to target products to groups that have, in fact, turned their D&D game into a superhero game, right? And so being able to say, okay, there's going to be this different play my style, you should play it like this, you know, there, there is necessarily this commercial dimension behind it and what modules you write and so on are going to be dependent upon that. And so, I mean, I, but I, I fundamentally agree with you that that n nothing is going to sap the spirit. I mean, it, to some degree, you can say the more rules there are, the, the less people have to think for themselves or, um, you know, or you could say the more rules there are, the more people are going to rebel against them. Uh, people are going to find a way to have the experience they want to have around the tabletop. Um, but, I, but I mean, you know... I guess that that line of inquiry isn't terribly profitable for me in understanding what differentiates the old school like systems from the later systems, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, and especially if we get into what a story game say is, which, which I think Carl brought up earlier, like when I look at things like Powered by the Apocalypse, I think there is a real difference between what these games are doing and what like, you know, D&D does. I wonder if the popularity of, of um, uh, World of Darkness uh, during that same time period, uh, sort of, of of lit a fire under OSR because it's impossible for these things not to bleed into each other. And mm. World of Darkness is a very narrative-driven uh, play experience. Um, and I, I imagine that probably bled into a couple of 2E and 3E D&D games. And I wonder if this kind of staunch, like, no, the old school play style is you go in the dungeon and you check for traps and that's, that's you're, you're all... Uh, dungeon bound and that's the game and this is what the old school experience is uh, wasn't a push uh, back necessarily against um, the 3E play style but of kind of the popular narrative based games of that time yeah I'm sure there's there's something to that um, I mean I don't know really how narrative 
vampire is. I mean, to me, vampire really is still a superhero game. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are there are rules for how you're supposed to lose your humanity if you butcher humans. But I think people treated them a lot like people treated encumbrance in, you know, old school D&D, where it was kind of a nuisance that most of the time could get swept under the table. Certainly, I think there were people by the 2000s who definitely felt that going back and trying to restore the original experience was going to reveal something. And part of that is, I think, just historical interest, right? I mean, it was only really apparent with a few decades of retrospect just how important those original concepts were. Um, I mean, when, when Diablo is out and, you know, Baldur's Gate is out, games that are outselling what the player's handbook was outselling by like 10x right um people are having access to that dungeon experience and are interested in what just historically motivated this and that um need as well to get back to something that's more artisanal i guess to be able to approach that same experience but on your own terms not as a kind of mass market product where the overall narrative is pushed down on you but instead you and your friends get to decide what the story is going to be which you can't really do in diablo um i think that was a big push for that as well the kids were just raised even beyond the kids who grew up with AT&D. the kids who grew up with Baldur's Gate and diablo you know they i think went back for something that was more primal you've mentioned power by the apocalypse this is not a system i have a lot of firsthand experience with um but i know it's a system that kind of allows this sort of uh control of the narrative and when i think of of these terms of like story game versus simulations game the reason i push back against that is because uh you know i have tons of stories from old school D&D play that are really immensely interesting in my opinion um or at least immensely interesting to me at the time and um i th- i think when i hear that oh that's not a story game this is a story game what i think what we're actually talking about is how much control the players at the table have over the story as mm-hmm. far as like narrative mechanics or or do, when we kind of observe the story as a table of as something we can move around and 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 change the structure of the story when we have narrative mechanics to me i only want mechanics to to represent physics you know i only want to represent the physical actions and the the things that can happen um within the game but um the game is still a story-based game, um, a game of, of narrative construction. It's just the thing that changes is how much control over that construction is given uh, to the, the mechanics of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I always look back to um, Top Secret, to fame and fortune points when I look at fate points or, or you know any of the inspiration points that we have in 5th edition mechanics you give to players to grant them explicit narrative control mm-hmm. you know I, e- even earlier than than fate points and fortune points because they, they were really a uh, fame points and fortune they were a substitute for saving throws like when gary talks about what saving throws actually meant right he talks about them in story mechanics terms there's this i think it's in the dmg he has this whole kind of screed about what it is to make a saving throw and he's like look in a story about a hero like a conan you know there's this opportunity for you to just escape death like you know escape this horrible consequence um no matter what the physics are it has nothing to do with the physics it has to do with the fact that you're conan and you mm-hmm. know top secret took that further it's like you know if you have fame points you're james bond you're just too famous to be killed by that like low-level thug who happened to shoot you and so you can spend a fame point 
to say, no, actually, I didn't get killed here. And there, there are a whole bunch of corollaries for these that you see, even in games in the 1970s, that have cast a very long shadow over that whole kind of narrative control discussion. But, I mean, the thing about Apocalypse that I think is different, it's not just awarding narrative control. It's much more, you know, the creative um, impetus behind the story itself is pushed at, at game creation to the players. The players have to kind of make you know, the the environment they come from and create hooks. And the dungeon master has, yeah, v- has very limited powers in some ways to steer how the player is going to come into contact and what, what the resulting story of this will be. Hmm. And w- when you read somebody like Tweet talking about his goals for Ars Magica um, in the late 80s, I mean, he talks a lot about how could you just get a bunch of people together and have them all create jointly an interesting spontaneous story. One that doesn't require that what Blackout would have called the you know the storyteller overarching narrative being controlled by a referee, where the referee really can just change reality arbitrarily if they need to to make the narrative that they're trying to achieve come true. Th- these games like Apocalypse and whether they succeed or fail is an entirely different subject. Their design goal is to flip that on its head and to instead create this world where. You know, the players are the ones who are really responsible for the narrative, and the, the DM has a very mechanical, almost clerical role in the way that Apocalypse games can be played. It's so interesting you say that, because I think that that ultimately is how I view an old-school referee, is is in that exact sort of vein. It's someone who is not driving the story. That The story should it's actually be driven... Um, by what the players want to do, you know, them going and and trying to find the treasure and try to earn rewards to become more powerful to eventually, you know, make your own kingdom or wizard's tower or whatever it is. Um, and in my experience, in playing any form of Dungeons and Dragons, players have always been really, um, I guess maybe because there's there's some kind of stigma about how a D&D game should be played that uh, players have always been very resistant to that sort of play. In my head, the the main difference between old school D&D and contemporary d and I'm going to make that stick, I promise, um, <laughs> is that in an old school game, the, the DM is the referee, is the judge. And, you know, he you interact with the world in some way and he tells you the results of that. So it is sort of like he's, he's the actuary of reality. Whereas in contemporary D and and I think this starts in second edition, I actually have coined it as the Hickman effect. If you look at the change in modules between what TSR was publishing uh, in like the pre Ravenloft days, essentially um, you know, there isn't a story or there is kind of a hinted one. Whereas when Hickman came in with Ravenloft and, and Dragonlance modules became narrative focused. And I think the game became narrative focused. Um, so for me, that's, that's the, the, the difference between old school and new school play. Yeah. I mean, I guess I go back to the fundamentals. If you really look at D and D in 74, I mean, it tells you it's your job as the referee to sit down and create the world, to generate the dungeons, to create the environment the players are going to interact with. And, Certainly, you can find people who advocated in the 70s for a view that, you know, the function of the referee, you know, the, 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 the way these games are structured, players would kind of explore the referee's creativity in the generation of that environment. And, like, I mean, I think that's a, a valid view of it. I mean, I think 
the the closer you get back to the wargaming roots, obviously players have a tremendous amount of agency in war games. They really are in charge of what's going to happen, in charge of the fate of their characters. A lot of what people pushed back against was this notion, you know, that referees um, could change the world arbitrarily. In other words, like if you try, you know, you, you tell the referee, I open the door, and the referee says, you can't. My door doesn't open. Like the, the fact that you don't know why. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, I try to pick the lock, and the referee rolls back the counter. Well, it doesn't work. That 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 agency depriving feeling that that generated, you know, caused this this backlash of people who wanted to be able to have more explicit controls over how their players interact with the environment, so they could see that they had any control over anything, right? Mm-hmm. And the the OD and D rules do lend themselves to being a pure Kriegspiel, where you really do just say, "This is okay. This is what I'm trying to do." And you don't need to know anything about the system to ask these questions, right? The D&D, the referee can just answer you and say, well, this is what happens. And mm-hmm. the question of why that happened sometimes is something you, you, your, your character at least shouldn't know. And, you know, that, that's been, I think, maybe the fundamental tension. If there's a point to any single fundamental tension in, like, the design of RPGs over the last 50 years now, it's been how you balance that, how you balance you know the the this quality immersion that people talk about this sense they want to be able to feel like they're in their character situation which is you know kind of in a in uneasy alliance with this idea that you really have any idea why anything happens to you in these games that you understand the system well enough to be able to like you know be able to predict what should work and what shouldn't and understand the world well enough to predict those things and yeah, I mean that that tension has played out in so many different ways, um, and certainly I, I do agree with you as, as well about uh, the uh, increasing narrative sophistication of the environments that were being sold as commercial products, especially. And from Empire of the Petal Throne on, right, there were fully articulated worlds with histories and you know real story situations that you were thrust into, um, and that that too is very different in some respects from what was in the original game. Yeah, when we look at um, B1 or B2 uh, and we look at these modules, it really just gives you an environment. And then uh, when we look at a gazetteer, for example, it's really giving you a a narrative to follow. Um, uh, That's, you know, that's their kind of uh, adventure seed that they provide you in there. And it's really about um, what's going to happen next and not where things are. Yeah, and Gary, Gary would, you know, push back. I remember there was a Dragon article when he, I think it was called Books or Books and Games or Games Never the Twain Shall Meet, <laughs> when he talked about why LOTR would make for a lousy game. Um, that is LOTR, the story would, because it's such a railroad, right? Because, like, you know, a story where Sauron wins isn't a satisfying story. And, like, you know, he, he saw this kind of vast gulf between um, a too closely articulated narrative path. He liked the sandbox, but not so much the narrative path through these things. And many people, including uh, Tracy Hickman, really were looking at this from a very different perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't heard from Courtney in like the last like hour. Courtney, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I'm not. Uh, I mean, I'm loving listening to everything. I'm not big into history, so I don't really have a whole lot of comments or questions. But I am loving hearing you guys talk about it. So I, yeah, I don't know if we're any closer to an answer, though, right? Yeah. I mean, where 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 are we starting this? Car? So wait, what, what's our consensus going to be coming out of this? 
I don't even know if we've even stayed on a single subject <laughs> uh, uh, long fair. enough uh, 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 to have a consensus. Um, you know, uh, one of the 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 goals in my mind was to kind of kind of talk about the different ways that old school D and D was played, and that's that's still uh, left pretty unanswered uh, b- oh. because they're they're infinite, <laughs> so it's it's yeah. hard to pin down. But I I mean I know I, in these conversations I have with people, uh, there are people who consider miniatures to be a very new school approach to the game. Like oh miniatures those didn't show up till third edition. Um, which is clearly That's untrue. False. <laughs> but I mean, th- what they're doing is they're looking at the way that they saw it played and they're, they're extrapolating data from that. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I also know people who kind of feel like if there aren't miniatures at the table, this does not feel like an old school game to me. Um, so I, I've, I've heard both of those sides and I, I, you know, it's just one of those things that like, uh, I think one of the reasons the OSR kind of resists definition is because there's so many different approaches to these old school games and what even counts as an old school game or not yeah i mean and this is a tough one right because i mean because of that immense diversity so i you know a lot of people say and if you read the original D rule books you know gygax kind of suggests miniatures are nice to look at but hardly essential for playing the game mm-hmm. but then look at you know the rith campaign, the Rith Chronicles, right? One of the earliest well-documented campaigns out there. Look at the New York activities and Haven Herald and so on. People had rules for how to play, you know, tactical combats with miniatures that were specified in these things by like 1975, because the combat system in D&D was insufficiently specified for the kind of combats they wanted to run. And so they built their battle grids and they built their okay you can move this way and this this is how many steps it is to do this in combat and how many steps to do that and they're they're just there wasn't the material there to support that so it was you know created by the community but there's no question that a lot of people came to that same conclusion that like they needed those rules and they just made them and published them and they were out there Hmm. i think uh one thing that might be helpful is uh is to see where we all fall on the, like the answer to old school exceptionalism, which I guess like the question would be, do you think that old school D and D is played in a different manner than contemporary D and D? I mean, I think oh. this, this again, this, this goes back immediately to what I was saying about Ron Edwards and a hard look at D and D in the beginning. It's just, it's impossible to look at D and D the phenomenon as it was received by the players and say, this was the way it was played. Some people played it like improvisational theater, like pure Kriegspiel. There were, there were in 1975, I can show you people saying they're not going to let their players know the rules and other people played it like a war game. Um, you know, and I, I actually up on my blog, I have, uh, a couple of old news clips and there's one news clip from 1976. That's from a, a DC area, um, uh, hobby store where you know the referee was literally um, not playing the opposition. He had players against players was the game, and the referee really was a neutral arbiter. And honestly, I think Dave Arneson gravitated much more to that play style than he did to kind of I'm the dark force puppeteering all of the monsters in the dungeon. Um, you know, he preferred something where it was really the players who were going to be conflicting among each other, and he kind of got to sit back and just adjudicate between them. But, I mean, th- these all existed simultaneously, and so, I mean, it's almost impossible to codify what, um, 
what was the the old school way. But do you think that those ways are vastly different from how people are playing modern D and D? Well, I think some some of them are very different, and some of them probably aren't. I mean, I sure. I was just in a D and D game earlier this year that was a complete dungeon smash and grab, right? <laughs> Where we were playing Mad Mage, we're playing Mad Mage the module, and like I mean, it was a total power game slaughter fest, right? And like some tables you sit down to, I mean, it was played with miniatures, played very, you know, tactically on a grid. Like, I mean, I, I think that might not have been very different from what some people are doing in 1975. Yeah, I think the rules are different. And I think while that does sort of lead people different directions, I do think that the play styles have existed forever. Um I mean, even uh, during the creation of the game, I imagine there was times that they sat down and, and tried it one way and then tried it the other, or, you know, and maybe it wasn't as sophisticated as that, or maybe they didn't even realize they were doing it. Um, you know, I've, I've had sessions where kind of coming out of it, people go, man, we didn't roll a single die during that entire session. Um, Those are my favorite kind of sessions. <laughs> well, and then some people, I, when it was said to me, it was not said in a, ooh, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> but um uh uh the point being um and and kind of the 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 reason I want to talk about this idea is I feel like uh at the OSR as a whole is sort of looking for this play style. Um and I think part of that is in reaction to what they perceive as a play style that has uh taken over the way D&D is played. Um hmm. you know, and when we talk about um the current play style of D&D, what we're really talking about is one where people envision uh, their characters, both their backstory and their um, story going forward. And they're they're it's they're my least favorite. <laughs> and they're thinking of it as narrative construction. And maybe it's instead of story gaming, uh, we should call it authorship gaming. You know, we should talk about it as like what role uh, in the game do you have as an author? Uh, how much of the story are you uh, uh, authoring as a player? And you know, I mean, if I went back to to symbolist, right? Um, once again, you know, symbolist was a real believer in plotting the the fate of his characters. And of having, you know, the the referee's responsibility, and this is again writing 1978-ish, um, having the referee's responsibility be to realize the narrative, the word, the kismet, you know, whatever it was of of his um, of his character. And he gives this this great example of that, and of kind of different ways that if his character would have died without receiving his fate, the referee should fail forward him. And like, but th th this was part of the dialogue, even in 1978. I mean, that's yeah, the that's thing that's really, so like, because failing forward is is a, a game tenet that I learned from uh, Luke Crane's um, Burning Wheel system, and it's something that I do bring into my D and D games. And to me, that's been something that I thought was sort of like, oh, that kind of like that's my little niche. That's like the thing that makes me a cool DM is I do this for them. But it, I mean, you know, some bozo back in 1978 was doing it. So like, you know, nothing's original, I guess. Well, I mean, that that's part of it. And then, but that, that that is the thing for me that is so exceptional about the OSR, right? Or the old school, uh, the old school play style, separate from how we recreate it, like this diversity and this creativity that was like unleashed by the release of D&D &D took people in such a multitude of directions. And, you know, if you look back to the dawn of like the wargaming hobby in 1957, when Jack Scrooby started the Wargame Digest, you know, it went until 62, into 63 maybe. But like in that time period, pretty much 
people exhausted what the design space was of miniature wargaming, you know, they they thought of most of the kinds of things you'd want to be able to do with it. And similarly, I think that that was largely true of, of RPGs. I mean, people came up with a lot of the core ideas. Now, I mean, I don't think they came up with literally everything. And I do think some of these games, like the Apocalypse stuff, re- really are, or, you know, or Jason Morningstar stuff, right? Fiasco, Grey Ranks, games like that. Like, you wouldn't really be able to find Grey Ranks in, like, 1978. But, you know, they um, they did think through kind of what the implications were of the referee having this degree of character control, um, what it me- meant for these things to be stories. People were profoundly concerned with the storytelling dimension of this from the very start and mm-hmm. how you can generate immersion from it and things like it. I do yeah. think there is something to be said for the difference in contemporary D&D's rule sets versus an old school D&D rule set. Um, like one of the things that I... I miss a lot when I'm looking at 5e are things like the dungeon turn and sort of having a procedure for the group, a a real world procedure of everyone giving what they want to do to a centralized party leader. Um, That's something that I don't think exists uh, in, in modern D and D you know, there time in a dungeon is not structured exploration in a dungeon is not structured it does become more of a for some reason that portion of it is is free for all where the exploration rules in D, while i will not say are like explicitly designed to cover all instances they're at least touched upon you know how fast you can move and and things like how long something takes and you can and you know when wandering monsters show up um that's not really codified as much in post second edition D and um, D. Same thing with like uh, hirelings, you know, like getting a troop of guys together to go pull a heist at the Dragon King's tomb. I feel like that sort of play style is is less in focus with today's rule sets, uh, unless that's what the the DM says you're gonna do. Um, I, I'll certainly. Uh, I think I got your back on that one. I mean, I was thinking of Ars Magica, of course, and like the, the Custos mechanisms and the, this idea of kind of troop style play. And, you know, you've got the wizard and then kind of a supporting cast and you, you switch it around. I mean, t- certainly there are games that have experimented a lot with what it's like to have that experience of command. That The time management thing, I think I largely agree with you. I mean, like encumbrance, I think it just is something that people, you know, tried to streamline, right, to make it... Um, chafe less in the player's yeah. experience. Well, I imagine that like when they were getting playtest feedback as much as they could for um for the newer versions of D&D, like one of the things that people probably said was, yeah, we don't really use dungeon turns or we don't use the collar or the mapper. And so those real world positions sort of just got axed because people weren't really using them, but I I think they they are a really special portion of, I think, the the feel, like the aesthetic feel of an old school D and D game. Sort of you know, how I've, the art. I've is. still done mapping at least in Five E. So our, where I was at on this is that um, the rules have changed, but that's pretty much it. Because um, they they D and D has always been a game of infinite possibilities. So that's kind of where I was trying to land with what I was saying earlier. Uh, so while 5e's rules do not look 
very much like OD&D's rules. You can do these wildly disparate games, both within only using 5e and with only using old school D&D. So that's why I'm resistant to this, like, there's an old school play style. I'm resistant to that idea because I think, I think the play styles, the possibilities have always been endless because that's what originally fascinated people with D&D in the first place. Mm-hmm. I feel like the reason there's yeah, such a fascination around it. Games and, and, you know, uh, six guns and sorcery to steal a turn from Gary you know cowboys going back in time to arthurian times like and i i agree with you carl like that was sort of what i was saying about third edition is if you look at the rules the things that there are rules for really haven't changed they like they changed the labels but your listen check is still your it's still the listen at doors check and the the spot check is still the surprise rule like i i i don't think you're wrong in this regard I mean, certainly, I think 3E was radical just in having, like, armor class, you know, like... Go up you know, instead of down. Yeah, which, you know, Zeb Cook said was something they couldn't do in second ed, right? Um, that people just, they, they wouldn't take it. Um, and yeah, the, the, the D20 system having the one role to rule them all uh, did give them a lot of opportunities to make what seemed at the time, sure, like profound, um, you know, very difficult changes. But yeah, yeah in retrospect, uh, how much effect some of them had is probably probably a bigger question. Yeah, I actually it, it, don't like single resolution mechanics. I, I like the game aspect of D&D or, you know, I, I use all D6 damage dice in my, my BX game because it's like, oh, well, now I'm going to roll the game dice. I'm playing a game. Now I'm going to roll the game dice or, you know, I'm going to roll this weird die. And I think that's a, a fun portion of it. So I kind of actually, I lament the loss of all those different fiddly rules. I think this ascending versus descending armor class is one of the strangest things to, to permeate our RPG culture because it's one of those mechanics that's only different in its presentation. Like yeah, you can like, look yeah. at <laughs> you can look at mechanics in old school D and D and go, "Wow, that's really different." But whether your armor class is two or eighteen is not one of them. That that that, that functions exactly the same. Yeah. Um, also, it's just like when people are like descending armor class. Like I never got my head around it. As like you can't or or Thaco, I guess specifically. My thought always is: Do you do you not know how to subtract? Did you not go to that day of first grade? You just miss that oh, I, whole unit. That's I was gonna say. I mean, there, are, you know, there are limits. I think they discovered when they're doing three E to how far they could bend D and D and still have it be D and D. Like you know, three E is almost classless, right? Mm-hmm. Like because you can be like, oh, I'm gonna take a level of fighter, and now I'm gonna take a level of bard, and you just kind of, you know, every time you level up, you can just kind of pick from this menu, and you get, you know, the base class feats for everyone, and you know, there are certain levels you want to reach for these before you move on to the next, and it's, it's. It, it retains class while being as classless as it can be, mm-hmm. but there was a line they didn't feel like they could cross, right? They couldn't be a classless game. I mean, RuneQuest is a, basically a classless game. I mean, you join a rune cult, okay, but like, you know, the 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 the, the way that 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 is structured, um, you know, I think again is another influence of of RuneQuest on Tweet and his thinking. Yeah, but they and they still brought that in though. In I believe it's in Unearth Arcana, you have like an archetype but it's largely you can you can build classes from different you know not classes you can build your character from different features of other classes and 
So like it did eventually come through. I think uh, one of the the big differences that you just hit on uh, between playing and as specifically as a player, uh, old school D and D versus contemporary D and D is I find that a lot of times when I'm playing contemporary D and D, I'm playing my I'm playing my mechanics. Like I'm looking at feats to and I'm playing those mechanics in order to better play the concept of my character. But I I definitely think that you engage in the you engage with the game more in a mechanical way than you would in you know 1974 white box D&D or BX or even um even AD&D though I I still think that it while harder to do you can still kind of get to that point with dual classing and multi-classing which which is a pretty distinct way of approaching things from say there's a, uh, this is an Ed Greenwood article in the Dragon around 1980-81 that's called "Players Don't Need to Know the Rules." That really just explains how you don't, you shouldn't need to understand your characters. You need to know you bleed easy, like or you, yeah. to, you can run fast and like now just go. <laughs> and he looked at this as a way to get people introduced to the game, at least initially. But you know, there was a vision in early D and think that was so divorced from having to understand the mechanics of the game. That yeah, t- today it wouldn't seem like it wouldn't seem like contemporary D and D to us if you didn't know like your stats. <laughs> so I have a question for Courtney. Yes, as someone who's played a little bit of Five E and and quite a bit of old school, uh, uh, do you see a difference in your approach, uh, or does it all kind of bleed together? It's all kind of the same to me. Like I just play whatever character I'm playing and make decisions based off as far as like character creation and 5e has so many rules and basic doesn't um I think it takes longer to get going but I guess I don't know the rules in detail to know uh I just make decision based off of like what the DM asked me like okay so what about this about your character okay well I think my character is more this way or that way um but no I just enjoy playing (laughs) and I don't really care which rule set I play whichever one everyone else wants to play. Um, so I, I think I'm pretty easy going as far as that goes. Yeah. Corners is, yeah. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm down to be a dwarf. Well, <laughs> like, you know, uh, yeah, I, I run uh, uh, various versions of D&D for my uh, homeschool game group uh, back uh, before the uh, the dark times. And... Um, before the blue booms, <laughs> and um, they, they played five E. They've played swords and wizardry. They've played BX D and D, and I, I, there are some of them that I don't think even know that we're playing different games when we're playing them. You know what I mean? Like it's all D and D to them. Um, so uh, That's you know, the I goal think, for me. Well, certainly, and I think I think some of this only exists when we view it under a microscope some of these types of uh, discussions. And while they're fun to have, I don't necessarily think that there's as much intrinsic butting of heads of these different versions of the game as we kind of uh, see when we look at them. And I think there's also people who are probably still playing AD&D who don't even know what the OSR is or care what the OSR is. You know what I mean? They're just happily playing AD&D with their friends and, and it's it's not even on their radar. Uh, and this this is one of the difficulties of trying to recreate old school gaming. I mean, I think I think we do either we take Holmes, we take BX, we take AD&D, and you know when you go back to 
the white boxes then, right? And play. I mean, we just import so many of the assumptions of much more thoroughly codified games, games with clear practices around things like how combat's resolved and things like that. And we we bring that back into our experience. It's it's you know it's hard to recapture you know the the vertiginous terror of looking at the original box set and having to just figure out what you're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll never be able to live in that moment of time where the frontier had yet to be explored. I think is is kind of what you're saying, like. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, if you talk to, you know, Mike Bernard, Mike Bernard would be scoffing at me now and saying, oh, come on, we all didn't knew how to do it. We just did it. And of course, if you're Mike Bernard, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> if you're like part of, you know, the Greyhawk and Blackmore family, I'm sure there was no ambiguity about what you're supposed to do when you approach the game. But, you know, pick some poor sucker in Los Angeles who, you know, orders this box set in March of 1974 and is trying to figure out what to make of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that like uh, between the oldest versions of D and D and the newest versions is that you know the clarification because you could pick up a five E box and you have the benefit of having forty years D and D design experience for what makes a good introductory product. Whereas if you were to you know the guy in nineteen seventy four picking up this uh, this box for this new game. You know, in both these instances, they could have never heard of D&D, never heard of playing game, only have ever played, you know, cops and robbers as a kid. But they're going to have an easier time with that fifth edition box set than they are with the the original box set. Uh, yeah, and I, again, I'd point to things like B1. I mean, I think B1 was maybe the first real attempt, more so even than Hobbes Basic, to mm-hmm. sit down and say, here's what you do. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, was- you're going to tell the players this is where you are, and they're going to tell you, I want to do this, and you're going to say, okay, this is what happens. Like, there, there isn't a lot of stuff that explains that before B1. Yeah, uh, that was, we did a review of B1 recently, uh, and that was one of the best aspects of b1 in my in my opinion was this is the tool that sits down and, and goes here's how you play D. whereas i i don't think that the rule books necessarily did as good a job well and you know you can thank my car for not being a big D fan in the sense of you know he really approached it from uh, how would i explain to somebody how to do this right mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, obviously he'd been around this environment and so we understood the game very well, but he wasn't, you know, all in on it the way that some of the people in his circle were. And so I think his distance from it, uh, really helped him to explain it in a way that got new players on board. I think we can take some comfort in the, in the, in the, uh, in looking at this and seeing that, like, how is 5e different from old school or even how was 3e different from old school and how was... Uh, what is the old school experience? Uh, we could take some comfort in knowing that uh, for some people, that line was drawn in 1975 when when they inter- introduced Greyhawk and they're like, this is no longer <laughs> the experience I want. Um, so, uh, you know, th- there's thieves now and now everything's uh, we're just going to roll dice to see what happens. And um, uh, it's 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 just nice to know that that that's that spirit of like you've ruined my game <laughs> goes back to the first year of its <laughs> release i mean it really AD&D, though just because of that influx of players because suddenly these were selling hundreds of thousands of copies um you know i mean i think that was the point when 
the the real battle lines were drawn. And it, you mm. you can draw. I think uh, you, you know we're looking for what the boundaries are around old school. Um, you know, I, I look at them there anyway. That's really what I think is kind of before AD and D came along, and not just because of what AD and D said, but because of what it caused in the community. That the the schism, the active kind of gnashing of teeth about it, that started once suddenly the game was going to be completely codified. N- not that it was, but just the threat that it was. So, do you guys think that OSR exceptionalism actually starts in 1977? That sort of the game was was played differently before this thing came out. Hmm. I think there's a reasonable argument to be made. I will say that I feel like my interactions with uh, OD&D and basic D&D players has been a lot different from my uh, uh, interactions with advanced Dungeons & Dragons players. And, and, and a lot of that has to do, I think, with the way uh, the the game must be played in the eyes of the advanced Dungeons & Dragons players. But as an overall uh, uh, fan base, the, the AD&D f- uh, fan versus the basic D&D fan, now we're just getting into all kinds of troublemaking. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I do think the fan base of AD&D is a little bit more stringent, and I, maybe that's where uh, this kind of conversation loops around on itself. Maybe we're not necessarily just talking about what is old school to uh, the OSR as a whole, but what uh, what's where those experiences come from that define what old school is to them. And it, maybe it's the people who were playing... Uh, BX and 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 Beckme just have a very different approach and very different experience than those who were playing AD&D, albeit 1E or 2E. There's probably something to that. I mean, there there is a, a certain amount of continuity that runs through from OD&D to Holmes Basic to BX to Beckme. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could see that. Uh, having like a let's... nom flashback of the time on Critical Wits when Tim and I tried to pin down what exactly a class is in D&D, and we just ended up with more questions than answers after the hour and a half. So I am a spirit of confusion. I'm a spirit of ambiguity, and it's complicated. <laughs> and so any discussion you bring me into, I win if the answer is it's complicated. But no, I, I mean, I really do in this instance think it's complicated. I mean... I think uh, we've talked about a lot of the things that are most salient to this in terms of, you know, how you try to draw boundaries around what's old school, what we think some of the practices were. And, you know, I guess I'm I'm of the opinion that the immense diversity of the things that were old school really does make it hard to nail down any originalist philosophy that we could try to recapture. I mean, I guess that's that's the, you know, maybe the the Achilles heel of any attempt to say we're going to do this the old school way is that there's just so many ways to do it that could include almost anything. Mm-hmm. There is not actually an old school way. Uh, yeah. I, I also am, I'm with you. Like, I feel like, uh, I feel like we, we, we brought up a lot of good talking points and I'm interested to hear what people have to say. If you want to write us in at questions at saver die.info, uh, send us an email. We'll read it on the show. Um, I, I definitely came into this conversation be like, well, of course, old school play is different, but even in just, you know, the, the two years that we were talking about doing the show with you, Carl, and I have broached the subject like gingerly at times. And, uh, I'm not sure is an old school way because of how 
just infinitely creative D&D is and so many things that people can do with it because it's not you know you can't you can't account for all instances of human creativity so yeah it's uh it's it's complicated I think there's something that happens in the in the lifetime of any uh, gamer in their gaming activity where they stop thinking about uh, the individual game or the rules in front of them and they start thinking about the experience of playing the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe some people will never reach that. But I mean, you know, once you start thinking about the experience of playing the game, then you start asking these questions of like, why do I enjoy this game and not uh, that game? And what, what, what happened at that table that made that so stu- stupendous for me that I don't feel every time I play the game. And we're all kind of chasing this perfect experience. I think once you've had that one high of a really, really good RPG, you, you continue to chase it and you continue to try to find that really, uh, and and the, the, the good news is sometimes you do, you know, sometimes uh, no matter how long you've been playing, you still find that moment of like, man, I am zoned in. This is very interesting. What's going to happen next. And I think the spirit of the OSR is, about boiling that down, trying to channel that experience of 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 that perfect game, and what that means to people, and what even the old school experience means to people, uh, depends as much upon them as anything else. Well, and this and this is the you know real explanatory power of uh, Glenn Blacko's model, right? This idea that there's role playing, there's storytelling, there's war gaming, there's power gaming, and all those things probably need to exist to some degree in any game for it to be successful but you know finding the right forms the right you know alchemical you know combination of those things to hit your sweet spot was kind of one of the first i think real insights into why it is some games satisfy us more than others and that even that was a, a pretty old school concept right that it was around by 1980 and there there are things that prefigure it a bit uh, that go back to even like 77 but like that um fundamental realization that not everybody likes the same way and that you should be able to kind of optimize the forms of a campaign to suit the people sitting around the table. That's maybe the most old school thing of all. I think for me, the thing that makes uh, old school and contemporary D&D different is uh, in in old school D&D, I I never have to add 37 to something. (laughs) It's the thing I did for way too long and I refuse to do anymore. Courtney, what do you think about all this as, like, the outside observer of, like, the weird geek lunch table talking about <laughs> d and right, I feel like it's it's splitting hairs. I mean, throwing a good old southern saying. I just feel like it's very nitpicky. Like, and like y'all were saying, like, play the game, find what you're... You're going to have an amazing experience sometimes when you hit all those different elements that you need. Um, for a perfect game for your t- game type and you're not going to every time doesn't mean you're not going to have fun in that game it just may not be feel like that perfect game uh i mean i guess go out and play D and have fun <laughs> and every now and then you hit that kind of perfect euphoric experience where you have all the different elements that you enjoy personally in a game so the first north texas convention that we went to mm-hmm. uh during a break of a game this was before I knew more about the different types of editions uh, of Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. And um, we were playing in a Frank Mentor game. And so during a break, I went outside like just to see if it was daylight outside or not. Because you kind of lose awareness of time. Yeah. 
and um he asked me what what type of game I like to play or something like that and I was like D and D and like kind of knew that that was maybe not the exact right answer but also knew that it answered the question and then that was pretty much all of the conversation and then I waited a moment I think he, he was talking to some other people so I like turned it on left and I remember telling Carl about it I was like I'm not really sure that was the answer he wanted but it was the best answer I had so that's what I gave and so then kind of the more we get into talking about the details of stuff I'm like you know that's that's kind of still my answer. Like that's the game I want to play. I want to play D and D or, or castles and crusades, you know, that game type of RPG game. And I don't really care to get into the, you know, is it BX or is it old school or is it five E or is it whatever? Like, I just want to play whatever everybody else wants to play in order to gather with friends or new friends and play games. So there you go. There's my story. I get you. It's good stuff. So just go play D and D. All right. Well, uh, again, we just want to thank John Peterson, author of Playing at the World, for being on the show on this episode. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. I'll come back sometime. Oh, good well, luck. Uh, we've got a couple emails, and then I think we'll uh, we'll let everybody go. Court. All right. Yes. Emails today. I do. I do. So we got an email with the subject Carl's joke from Keith. He said, I just left the show notes blank for the audience to fill in on their own. That was hilarious. Thank you, Keith, for There's boosting no Carl's ego. There's no we actually had to read that, but I, I demanded we did. <laughs> Especially because if I think we're going to read the other email that, that we have. Yeah, this is very this is wrong again. No, 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 no. It's, I'm right again. No, you're wrong. Hold on, hold on. First of all, let's not let's not just skip over this fact that I'm hilarious. Right. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Keith, Dang. so much. <laughs> you saw right through my ploy. <laughs> thank you, Keith, so much for writing it. That, that, that's you're not the uh, only one who who said that. Someone said it should win an award, a prestigious no. one. That's what they said. They, hmm. they said on the Facebook comments. So um, uh, I appreciate everybody uh, uh, appreciating the humor that just went right over my uh, co-host heads. <laughs> It was very funny in retrospect. <laughs> That's the only way I am funny. All right, next email. <laughs> All right. So uh, this email was entitled Torches from Mr. Chris Holmes. He wrote, in a recent episode, Carl and Christy got into an entertaining argument about dropped torches. I was just reading The Scarlet Citadel by Robert E. Howard. In the story, Conan runs through a dungeon trips and drops his torch extinguishing it the interesting part is later in the story he sees its ember and blows on it to re reignite it whenever in doubt i always go with the great writers i'm gonna have to read that story because i wonder if the dungeon that he's uh he's he's running through um if it's you know particularly wet or if maybe he drops it by a water source because uh, I'm pretty sure now we've gotten several emails that state that I was right about this. Well, Robert E. Howard agrees with me. <laughs> but, he, but he doesn't, though. Well, I think I mean, really so... the only way to test this is to um, light a torch and run down the street. And then drop it. 
and then drop it and see what happens. Well, what's the conditions of the like? Does the Scarlet Citadel take place, you know, in one of like the southern kingdoms that are by like you know a river basin, or you know maybe it's maybe it's somewhere that's wet? That's all I'm saying is I gotta so, I gotta get a description. Well, that's my point. Thing. We can test it in different environments. So Chris Holmes, thank you so much for the email brings up a, 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 a huge topic of vast discussion that we're not going to have time to get into, which is, are we simulating uh, real life or are we simulating narrative? And in the narrative, if you drop the torch and it extinguishes, uh, you know, just like if you shoot the car and it explodes, is that fine to simulate in your gameplay, even though in real life, that's not really how it happens. Um, Oof. All right. Yeah, I guess... We did kind of touch upon that with uh, when John was talking about saving throws. Mm-hmm. Like the reason you get a saving throw is because you're Conan, and the reason the torch goes out is because it's narratively interesting. Sure, that's oh. like uh, Stan Lee's quote: uh, "Spider-Man only runs out of web fluid when it's the worst time that he could run out of web fluid." Right, and the torch only goes out when there's skeletons around. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I think the real question is, is this real life or is this just fantasy? Oh, that's so good. (laughs) Wow. That was the perfect timing for that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for writing into the show, Chris Holmes. Yeah, I don't know, though. I I still think think Carl's wrong. Anyways, that'll be our show for this week. If you guys (laughs) you can write us in at questions at saverdie.info. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the Saverdie Podcast. Uh, and I think that'll be it for this week. Make sure you guys stay tuned uh, after the credits for our actual play segment. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Peace out, Cub Scout. There it is. <laughs> Are you enjoying the show you're listening to right now? Great. Why not head over to patreon.com WGP and support that show for as little as dollar a month. Dollar a month goes a long way to helping support the network Wild Games Productions. Again, that's patreon.com slash WGP. Thank you. So you like AD&D 2nd Edition but no podcast to listen to? Guess what? We got the cure right here. I got a fever. And the only prescription is the Thaco's Hammer Podcast. You want me to put the hammer down? Join DM's Glenn, Brian, Corey, and Full-On Gamer as they discuss, debate, and review the world of 2nd Edition AD. Yes. Go here. Give me a gin. Yeah, that's, that's DM Corey ordering drinks. Sorry. Sorry. Girlfriend's getting gin. Rules, modules, supplements, clones, everything 2E is fair game. Someone lied to you, and there's an opposed role, and, oh, they won, so you believe the lie. I know, but I don't because I, the player, know that they lied to me but mm-hmm. you the character have to act like you take the lie so listen into a podcast where number two is number one the thaco's hammer podcast the best damn second edition add podcast ever you'll find it on itunes or at thacoshammer.info in a circular room with a dead snake and a dead yawn stands hilda and leothwar Hilda stands ready at the base of a spiral staircase. She is with two mercenaries, Brother Bowen and Eric. On the staircase stands Leothwar with his bow and arrow drawn. 
And at the top of the staircase, opening a trap door, is Cooper, leader of the Red Shields. As the trap door swings open, Cooper looks up, looks at Leothward, and says, Nothing happened. I have a bad feeling about this. Peek <laughs> your head see, out. Can you see in, into the door beyond? Um, yeah, it looks, it looks real nice. It's a grass or a room. It's a room. It's a building. There's a fireplace. Uh, some chairs. It's like a there a fire. Uh, no, not currently. Hmm. Do you hear anything? Uh, vaguely. What does it sound like? People? Yeah. Sounds like. Sounds like Manubria. Hmm? Like the city. I'm going to move a little bit closer. Okay. You move a little bit closer. Can I uh, also make out what's beyond the opening? Sure. You, you, uh, by, by, by that token, you move a lot closer. You move right up there with him. Okay. Uh, and you, and you look and you also see a fireplace. You see, um, this looks like, uh, kind of a nice dwelling, and you see within this dwelling there are more spiral staircases that lead further up to another trap door. And there is a doorway that is currently open. And as you peer and look, it is leading out to the cities of Manubria. So we're in like somebody's house? Indeed. Huh. Hmm. Should we go in? What do you think, uh, Leothard? Oh, are you asking me? Sorry. Um, hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I can ask the DM, but I don't know that he'll tell us. <laughs> I, I want to look around. So I'll I'll go up through the trap door. Okay. Into this person's house, I guess. Sure. Um, what What's the room I'm standing in look like? You're standing in a uh, circular room. It's about the same dimensions as the room you just came up from. Uh, there is a door that is open, and there is a trap door in the ceiling, just like the one you came through, that is also open. Are uh, we in a tower? Do we know we're in a tower? I mean, we're in the Tower of Xenopus. Well, uh, no, the Tower of Xenopus is a pile of ruins, and you went down through that pile of ruins into this dungeon that was located mm. underneath the Tower of Xenopus, and your travels have apparently uh, led you back into town because now you are standing in a building inside the city of Manubria. But you said the there's a trap door next to me that I just came out of that's open, and then in the ceiling, there's also a trap door that's open? And another spiral staircase, much like the one you came up that is leading up. Are we in a Tower of Xenopus museum? <laughs> like a rebuild in the middle of town or something the other spiral staircase is that accessible from this room yes hmm. i'm gonna relay this information to everyone oh are there any other exits on this floor like we yeah. can hear the town there's a door there that's like a... open that leads to the streets of manubria okay okay hmm. Mm hmm i'm gonna like yeah tell everyone that like we somehow ended up back in town and there's there's another staircase that we could go up uh, crispy, roll a d6. You want to roll a uh, low number. I rolled a one. Interesting. You hear from up above you, 
on mm-hmm. what would be the second floor, sounds of a grunting animal. Oh. Cooper asks you, uh, what's the matter? Uh, I'm going to tell... Uh, I There's some sort of beast above us. Can I go up closer to them? Are we yeah. all up there? Yeah, you okay. can go up there. Okay. I just want to be close enough to be... Helpful. Yeah. Um, as you're standing there pondering what to do, you start hearing the clanging of metal accompanying this grunting beast. <laughs> and just clang, clang, clang. I don't have good clanging foley work. Hold on, ready. That does not sound right. <laughs> I tried. That's all right. Um, I think I'm going to drop back <laughs> down the hole. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you go back down. And then I'm just going to keep a lookout to see what comes down the spiral staircase. Is he shutting the door? No, I'm keeping it open. Okay. So, you drop back down onto the staircase in the uh, dungeons, and you peek up through the trap door, and uh, you look trying trying to look up at the other staircase, and it's a little bit hard, but you, you're able to get a pretty good uh, line of sight, and n- nothing comes down. I'm going to tell everyone that I heard something uh, up above us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to, but like there is a safe exit. And uh, I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that we go back into the room quietly. Cooper pauses and says, what do you think this all means? What is this? I don't know. Uh, it's odd that. Did, didn't we have to travel quite a ways to get to the tower? It wasn't just outside of town, was it? Like, so much so that if we went through the basement, you know, we wouldn't have ended up back in town, right? I don't know that we specified, um, but no, it was... you you. The, the dungeon's pretty large, and you've actually done quite a bit of traveling hmm. as it is. So you're, you're, you weren't too far out of town. And uh, it, it doesn't defy logic for you to be back here. Uh, in the sample dungeon, it's just the ruin. The, the entrance is in town. <laughs> okay, okay. So I, I, uh, I kind of, I kind of shifted a little bit and then shifted it back a little bit. I'm just gonna explain uh, that we found a shortcut. We found an alternate entrance. If we could clear this out, we might have an easier way to get back to explore more. But there's something above us that might uh, prove to make that difficult. Okay, but is this just someone's house? Mm. Could I tell fairly clearly that the grunting noises were not of a man? Yeah, I'll say yeah. And it, it, it's not like a common animal or anything. Despite, like, it wasn't like somebody's my- like. <laughs> <laughs> despite my despite your amazing my, my amazing my amazing animal impression <laughs> and it didn't sound like a dog or like somebody's like pet of some sort right uh no not really no i wouldn't say okay. you that's the impression you got oh then i will I, i'll say to coop uh it very well could be someone's home uh or was and now it has been absconded with by squatters. Perhaps if we can rid them of their whatever that is problem, 
uh, there might be a handsome reward in it for us. Hmm. Onward to treasure. What do you think, Hilda? Do you think we should go into this person's house and try to explore it, or should I, I, I'm a little hesitant. I feel like maybe we should just stick to the dungeons and leave well enough alone. Well, somebody could use our help, and there might be a reward. And if we do manage to find treasure in the dungeon, this would be a, a, a fair, easy way to get into, tower, uh, into town to unload that treasure. Hmm. Well, we'll go with you, whatever you decide. All right. So I'm going to try to coax us in quietly into the uh, the room above us. Okay. You are all standing inside a circular room. There is a circular stairway leading up to a trap door in the ceiling. There's a trap door in the floor that you're standing around. And there is a wide open door that leads to the city streets of Manubria. Oh, the door to Manubria is open? Yes, they're both open. Oh, okay. Um, hmm. I'm going to peek out the door to Manubria. Like, can I tell kind of where we are-ish? Is there activity on the street? Yeah, there's some activity, and uh, you kind of peek out the door, and you notice that you're in a tower. Is there a sign out there that says, Xenopus Museum? (laughs) It does not say Xenopus Museum. It looks to be a private dwelling, and uh, it doesn't look that different from Finian's Tower, the wizard who sent you on this quest, but it's definitely not Finian's Tower. But it could be another wizard's tower, maybe. I don't know. Yes, it um, could be. It 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 very likely is. Um, and uh, Cooper kind of laments for a second. He's like, "I wish we had Jan with us still. He was a local. He might know about this." We still have. So we still have Cooper, Eric, and Brother Bowen, right? Right. In addition to Hilda and myself, right. And Jan okay. was a new recruit of theirs who was local to this town. But they are not. I think, I think that we should have Eric go check the other door. <laughs> All right. Um, at this point, Cooper says, how about you go check it? I but, can go uh, check it. Hilda, you're expendable. <laughs> Eric isn't. If anything, if you were at a party and was playing a game in which he had to introduce himself by saying... Uh, an adjective that begins with the same letter as his name, and then his name, he would be expendable Eric. (laughs) And I would be... Heroic Hilda. As I often say. How about we don't get ourselves killed, Hilda? (laughs) And you would be... Oh, I'm always always lazy Leothard. (laughs) Not not lively Leothard? That's a good one. I should have come with that. Dead, deadly authority. Eric, if you go up first, I'll be right behind you to protect you. Um, well, Eric's not too worried about going up there at all, but Cooper's a little uh, hesitant. But Cooper will say, as long as more than just Eric's going up, I don't mind pulling our weight as long as you're pulling your weight. Sounds like a plan. Okay. So, Cooper and Hilda ascend the staircase to the second trap door. And uh, what are you doing? Are you going to peer through it? Or are you going to just go up into it? How do you want to approach it? Uh, do I hear anything at the door? You hear that same grunting sound and the clanging of metal. I am going to train my bow on the door. Um, can, can Eric peek? Does the door open 
towards us or away yes, from us? It opens and it's hanging down. Oh, it's already open. Yes. Sorry. Um all right, can we can we see anything? You peer through the hole. Peek. You yes. peek, peer, peek and peer. You peek. Whatever's littler. I want to do the littlest looking I can You squint. Look. You squint through the hole. <laughs> oh goodness. Okay. You peek through the trap door. And the room above you also has a spiral staircase, also leading up to a closed trap door. This is very clearly some sort of magical study. You see, even to your dwarf eyes, the looks of arcane artifacts littering this room. And in a large cage stands a giant, hostile, and angry-looking ape, grunting and shaking the cage. (laughs) That didn't sound any better. Does he look like rabid or possessed or does he just look like an ape that's angry because it's in a cage? Probably yeah, it just looks small. like it looks like an angry ape in a cage. He doesn't look demonic or anything like that. He doesn't look like a monster. Just look like an angry monkey in a cage. I know they're not actually monkeys. Oh, so like wait so all right. Do I have a banana? <laughs> well, now, well now we're just in some wizard's house. Yes, you are in a wizard's house. Hmm. It's weird that the door was open. It means the wizard might know that, like, I'm sure the wizard is aware that his house is upon, like, it's above the ruins of the Tower of Xenopus. Or the the dungeon underneath. Hmm. It's like the wizard left in a hurry. Maybe. Like. Is there any, like, disheveled papers? There is. uh, Now that you see that the. Uh, ape is caged and there doesn't seem to be any uh, immediate danger uh, you're able to look around a little bit more thoroughly uh, there are tall windows on each of the wall and there are two giant uh, tomes, giant books um, that look magical in nature uh, there are uh, lamps and and uh, Bunsen burners and chemicals and skulls and loose pieces of parchment. There's uh, mystical designs written on the floor. Real proper wizard study type place. Um, mm. Eric at this point says, hey, do you think one of those books is the book of Xenopus? That Finian wanted? Is that what we're trying to find? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe, but like, I I don't want to straight up rob this dude. Like, I don't know. I, I for one, would rather not rob a wizard. Sounds like a poor decision. Yeah. Well, we're all standing in To his... rob the wizard. <laughs> Cooper says, well, we're all standing in his house. Do you think we should go back down? I think that we should go and alert the guards that this man left his house uh, and he left his door open. Are the Bunsen burners still on? Like, is were things left? No, no, they're not. Nothing, oh, okay. nothing is currently percolating. The fire's out. Everything's. What happens if I throw some food at the monkey? Like, give the <laughs> m- 
ape some food. Uh, Do I have anything an ape would eat? Sure. You have some like uh, uh, almonds or something that you can throw its way. Can I get them in the cage? Like kind of sure. toss them in the cage? Sure. The monkey can just get to them? I understand. You're not. They're you're, different. Apes. Uh, sorry. No, we know. It's sorry. a manubrium ape monkey, so it can be whatever we want it to be. Oh, it's a gorilla, but it has a tail. Yeah. Hilda approaches the cage and tosses some almonds at the feet of this large beast. It immediately uh, bends down and picks up the food and starts nibbling on it. Uh, It uh, seemingly calms down uh, during this time of feasting. It's no longer making lots of noise, and you are in the second uh, floor. Uh, I want uh, both of you to roll a d6. You want a low number. Well, I rolled a six. Dose. You rolled a two? I did. Leothward, you hear from down in the dungeon the voice of two people having a conversation. Mm. One voice says, We cannot delay. I must get back to my books. And another voice says, Of course, sir. Excellent, sir. What do you do? Mm, I feel like honesty is probably going to be the... I, I mean, I tell everyone that I hear a noise. Uh, but I, I... I feel like hiding would be... I mean, is there even anywhere to hide in this area? There is an open doorway out to the city. You hear this all the way in the dungeon. Hmm. Do we grab the book and go? Well, we don't know that these are the books as Anubis. We grab both the books and go? (laughs) (laughs) All right, remind me, who are we getting the books for? Finian wants the book of uh, uh, Xenopus. He'll reward you for the book. Any other treasure you find in the dungeon is yours as well. We want to do it without just grabbing the books and running. I don't know if these are the books, though. Like, I mean, if they're not, we leave them on the doorstep and knock and run. Then he has his books back. <laughs> That's true. They don't have like forensics. They're not going to be able to dust it for prints. You hear the voices of these two people in the dungeon. Uh, one's muttering about how I must get back to my books. I got to do my studying, and the other ones just absolutely drooling over every word this uh, other person says like absolutely sir of course you must sir Uh, that's where we're going to stop for this actual play and we'll see how Hilda and Leothward and the Red Shields uh, get out of this at this point The Savor Die Podcast is a production of Wild Games Production and it's produced for entertainment purposes only the music used in the intro and outro is by Tripod and used with permission be sure to visit the Save or Die crew at saveordie.info for more information. If you'd like to support this podcast, please go to patreon.com slash WGP. Love me, that's nothing new.